This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the media and current affairs show on 2SER and right around the country on the Community Radio Network. My name's Jack Fisher and we're kicking off tonight's episode with a strong language warning because we'll be asking how a Melbourne man with a purportedly unfortunate name tricked media outlets across Australia and around the world, all with a simple Facebook post. Also, the ABC series on domestic violence that's been six months in the making has it shown what hard work and patience can achieve in journalism. And Facebook's making more inroads into the world of news media. Here to tell me all about it is journalist with tech news site CNET, Claire Riley. Welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks for having me. And associate editor of the Huffington Post in Australia, Josh Butler. Welcome. Thank you. And joining us from Daily Life, Jenny Noyes. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks. Good to be here. So last week, media outlets around the country were on the back foot when they had to reveal that the story of a Melbourne man whose rather unfortunate name had sent him viral on Facebook was all a hoax. The man claimed in a Facebook post that people didn't believe him when he told them that his Vietnamese name was Phup Dat Bic, which if read with the English pronunciation could sound very different indeed. Except the media did believe him and his story was shared widely. So to guide us on our discussion of this topic, here's the BBC on the correct pronunciation of this very unfortunate name. How to say Mr. Bic's name in Vietnamese. Vietnamese is a tonal language, so tones or accents are very important. So the whole name would be Phúc Đạt Bic. Phúc Đạt Bic. Now, this was not the first Facebook post to go viral and to attract media attention this year. But part of a journalist's job these days is obviously vetting the real from the fake when it comes to social media. Do you think there were some warning signs that perhaps something about this guy's story was amiss, Claire? Yeah, look, I mean, I think all us journos in here probably recognise that Facebook needs to be taken with at least um, a grain or half a cup of salt. Uh, it's, it's really interesting, the world of viral media, because it we're always told to focus on what's shareable, what's interesting, what's got people talking, and that's not necessarily going to be RBA rate rises. It could be something really simple that seems to be about just a regular person. Um, it, it's something that in a country like Australia, so many people could um, associate with because we've got such a such a diverse population here. But I think it is the classic case of just watch what you're doing and just do a simple background check. And I think in this case, a really basic step wasn't followed. And that was just kind of following beyond the first shareable click. 
Josh, do you think there were some sort of warning signs, red flashing lights about this guy's story? It was one of those stories that's almost like too good to be true. It's one of those ones that people will click on on Facebook and they'll retweet on Twitter and that sort of thing. But yeah, the, it was one of those ones I kind of missed it when it first came out and I saw it on Facebook and you could basically sum up the entire story in a tweet or a you know, Facebook post. This guy's a funny name. Let's sort of laugh at him a little bit. But the thing for me was journalists have so many tools now. They're now kind of standard basic toolkit like to, to verify social media um, memes and, and these sort of things that, that do go viral. We can you know, reverse Google image search something or we can geolocate the, you know, where, the, where the tweet or whatever was sent from. But the biggest red flag here was no one actually looked at his passport photo that he had claimed was getting him into trouble. And if you actually, all you had to do was zoom in a little tiny bit on, the, on the, his name and you could see it was very obviously... Photoshop, like the, the text was different, it was a different size and it was a different weight and sort of a bit different colour and yeah, it was. there should have been someone checking this, there should have been someone having a look and saying, hey, maybe this is a bit wrong and I remember when it came out that he, he you know, hoaxed the media, I, I put a link on, you know, I, I tweeted it out and within about 30 seconds one of my followers said, yeah, it's definitely photoshopped, like it was so clear once you actually looked at it and someone should have picked this up. So, Jenny, people didn't look exactly close enough, and now this guy is saying that people should go out there and make their mark, basically, by pranking the media, even if that is with a simple Facebook post. Do you think it's easier than ever to prank the media in this way? I think it's very easy to prank the media um, because, you know, people don't have enough resources and it's, you know, they're just trying to get the clicks. And when that happens, you know, it's very easy to just go, oh, someone's reported this, we'll just do our own take on it. Um, so, you know, as soon as that ball gets rolling, it's almost, you know, people just, there's no accountability to actually fact check what's going on. You just assume that the other media outlets that reported it have done the work for you. Um, with this story, to be honest, uh, you know, I feel like there are more important story, stories for journalists' uh, fact checking st- skills to go into. Um, and... For me, uh, I felt quite smug when um, it turned out to be a hoax because uh, at Daily Life we chose not to re- uh, report it, um, mostly because we just thought it was a silly story and kind of racist. Uh, so, yeah. So is it a bit of a double-edged sword with stories like this wherein they need fact-checking, but at the same time they're not deemed important enough to go out and do that? Yeah, I think so, definitely. Um, and that is one of the decisions that editors need to make. Um, are you prepared to just run with a silly story that might end up embarrassing you? Um, you know, where are you going to put your resources into or is it worth? Is it actually worth printing it? Maybe you should just leave it um, and look for something else that you can verify and that maybe has a bit more substance that's worth verifying. Claire... The hoaxer has said out of this ordeal, basically, he's concluded not to trust the credibility of the media and that it's twisted by the hungry journalists who mask the truth. Is that fair? <laughs> That's amazing. Um, what? A, yeah, twisted by hungry journalists. We are hungry, but I suppose that's because we're not paid well enough. Um, no, I. Uh, I think it's. I think it's interesting because what he said, he's kind of he's admitted to gaming it, and yet going back and kind of snapping back on people. I think um, Jenny had such a valuable point that you've got to be fact checking but where do you decide the line on what you're going to do I think a media can be gamed if they're going to recognise that um, sweet here's some low hanging fruit I'll just take that but 
with this new digital world that we operate in, there's if the stories come easily, it's also very easy to fact check. It's also you can check the tweets. Um, you can check where it's you know a basic digging one level below would sort you out. And I think it's in it's really going to show. It's going to sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of journo's. I mean, where we're always thinking about you can't even trust. Um, you can't even trust Steve Wozniak. Oh, that's such a nerdy reference. Um, you can't even trust Kim Kardashian's Twitter account. You don't necessarily know that that's a direct quote posted from her. So it's just about working out the new tools that you have and the new ways of thinking about journalism in the digital age. Josh, hungry journalist who who masked the truth. Yeah, I'm not sure if I want to be taking morality sort of lessons from a guy who's who's done something like this on Facebook. But at the same time, I'm not really sure I believe what he's sort of saying. Like he's had this master plan. Like he posted this in I think January or something. So if he's out to game the media, he's playing a very long game. Um, look, I I like I like made, made a point here. Like I think stories. Like I think every story you need to be able to put that. You know, put put your reputation on the line when you write that story, and no matter what it is, no matter whether it's this guy with a you know vaguely funny name or you know some huge national security story, you should be you know willing to put your reputation on the line for that story. And if you don't believe what that is, if you can't verify it yourself, all these sort of things, like every every story that you read about this, every every story you read on this particular yarn, it was every outlet said you know we've contacted so and so for comment and they didn't wait for him to come back and say oh that was a joke with my friends or whatever it was it was just like hey here's this thing presented as fact we haven't done any journalism of our own we've just basically copied off the person before us who copied off the person before us who copied off the person before us and it got to the point where it wasn't just the little blogs anymore it wasn't just the pop culture clickbaity websites it was i think the bbc covered this i think someone like new yorker magazine covered this as well and these are big outlets that should be doing their journalism I think but I'm not sure like we like we said here before you know this guy he's set out to really trick the media and I'm not sure if you can come back and say oh you know it's the media is so hungry for this when you've created an environment where that is going to flourish. It's interesting that you mentioned he had begun this elaborate hoax if you will so early content verification is obviously becoming a bigger, bigger thing in journalism and journalists are being trained in it, in how to do the things you were talking about before, to look at the metadata and so on. Is it possible that the hoaxes can then keep up with that and sort of lay the breadcrumbs a little bit earlier and this will never really end with journalists becoming better at what they do? It's always that kind of chicken and egg situation where people will keep up to the extent that they need to. I think um, the reason hoaxes are so... They've been going for, you know, back in the early, early days of print media, it's not a new thing. It's just about how it adapts and changes in a new world order for news. And I think um, it's about just training up and being as good as possible and, you know, maybe having that one story where you kind of get bitten on the rear by it and you will always remember to fact-check in future. You only need that one scare to kind of just pull your, pull your button to line. Indeed. There was some debate about whether Phupdap Bic could actually constitute a proper Vietnamese surname, since the name Bic is not commonly used as a surname. In fact, I think it was SBS's Vietnamese program that worked on unravelling this whole lie. So is there a lesson here maybe about diversity in the Australian media? Jenny? Yes, definitely. I don't have any knowledge in Vietnamese names, but I even kind of looked at it and was like, that looks a bit strange. The, the more people who have some background in this and can uh, have a little red red flag go off in their mind um, and raise the alarm, uh, the better, obviously. Claire, you've just returned from 
Vietnam? What did you find about yeah. the names there? Yeah, um, look, it was it was an incredibly complex language, and um, it's I think that's it's it is a double edged sword in a lot of ways because you don't want to question it and say, yeah, that can't be a real name, and then someone's like, dude, that's that's my actual name. That's really insensitive. <laughs> um, but I think it is it is always good to have a kind of a, a newsroom that isn't necessarily filled with people all cut from the same cloth because not only do you get the ability to fact check stories across you know different disciplines and interests, but you're also bringing diversity into the work that you're writing and you're looking out for different kinds of stories when you're actually producing material. You're on Fourth Estate. My name's Jack Fisher. I'm speaking to Claire Riley, Josh Butler and Jenny Noyes. Now, the must-watch TV series of the week has been the ABC's Hitting Home. Shown over two nights spanning White Ribbon Day last week, host Sarah Ferguson takes an unflinching look at the issue of domestic violence across Australia. Jenny, what did you find most shocking about this series? For me, you know, there was a lot of shocking aspects to it. Um, you know, the whole series was was really confronting and really importantly so because it's such an important issue that I think, you know, we are hearing a lot about it in the news these days, but you don't really get those stories from from so close up as, as what we saw in, the, in that. Um, and for me, the, the most confronting, I think everyone has, has a different um, view of what they found most confronting. Um, I think for me, it was seeing the courtroom action and seeing just what a victim has to deal with in the courtroom, being cross-examined in that really aggressive way, um, having to sit, you know, a couple of metres from the your partner who, you know, you're accusing and they're denying it. Um, I thought that was that was really, really confronting for me. It certainly seems like it must have taken them quite a while to negotiate that level of access. Yeah. Josh, what did you find uh, particularly confronting about this series? Yeah, I think one of the most confronting things about it is sort of how mundane parts of it were like in terms of what we were just talking about in, in the, the court case or the fact that I think it was at a black town there's you know they dedicate entire days to uh, domestic violence cases and it's just like a cattle yard they just move people through and through and through and through and through and it's just an entire day of these awful cases um, and I think it's really good that we are highlighting this now in the media because I read a really interesting piece. I think Annabelle, Annabelle Crab wrote this piece in the, in the Herald the other day um, and she was talking about when she was a, a junior reporter in Adelaide or something and she listened listening to the police scanner as you know emergency services reporters do and um, every time there was a, a code for a domestic violence call they would just they just leave it and it she was sort of talking about how how awful it was that you know it, it would be exactly the same as a regular assault. Um, someone's got punched, someone's gotten hit or injured in some way by another person. It, but the fact that it was done in the the family home environment sort of meant that oh we're not gonna we're not gonna touch that. And you know I I, I I'm from Wollongong in the Illawarra and I, I was a domestic sorry sorry again I was a emergency services reporter at the local paper there and there were just that much. Um, there, w- there was that much sort of domestic violence work done by police. There's some astronomical percentage, like I think 40%. I heard one day um, of of police police's work is done in domestic violence, and that's so awful. And you put those sort of statistics out in front of people that might not necessarily know that much about the the notions of domestic violence. They might just you know not really understand how how big a problem it is and how pervasive it is. And yeah, for me, it was just the most shocking part was how mundane parts of it were just to show that it is it happens to so many people and it is such a big issue that we have to deal with it in that way yeah I think um you made a really good point talking about what's mundane and and how um the news media can 
sort of look at domestic violence incidents and, you know, in determining what's newsworthy, because it's something that's happening so, like all the time, so constantly and often, you know, repeated incidents with the same people involved, that's easily something that in the media we can sort of think, you know, people get bored of that, of those stories. You know, it's horrible to say that out loud that, you know, people are bored of it, but there is... um like this editorial judgment that people are not going to be interested in hearing this sort of thing because it's and and because it's happening constantly why would you report on one particular story that happened today when there are you know hundreds of the same stories happening everywhere that, that's a good point as well because there, there was this um this tweet that went around a few months ago and it was uh, I think it was the the front page of the Brisbane Times website um, and I think kind of the exact number but say out of you know the top eight stories on the website's front page in their in their splash sort of part I think there were seven that were domestic violence or, or violence against women related um, and and someone took like a screen cap of it and circled all the pictures that were around violence against women or domestic violence and that went super viral online because people just went wow this is it was just a clear sort of stark indication of how big this problem is some days. And, and the fact that when it is reported, it just clogs newspapers. And it is just to show how widespread and pervasive this sort of issue is. I thought that was a really, just really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, I, find it, um, I find it quite interesting because we talk about the pervasiveness of the problem. Um, it's, it's something that we could look at across so many issues, you know, road deaths, do people get compassion fatigue with that? Or do we get sick of hearing about drug overdoses? Or I suppose there's a sensitivity warning on that at the moment. But that there are so many issues and we could very easily fatigue from it. But I think there has been this kind of code of silence about uh, domestic violence belonging in the domestic sphere. It belongs in the women's world, in, um, in something that we don't discuss. And I think there's been a bit of a shift, uh, obviously, with news outlets being more training around um, the way domestic violence and family violence is reported in the media. So getting, as we do with suicide reports, getting people to share a phone number. So if you have any concerns, please ring 1800RESPECT. And that is something that's generating this bit of a groundswell into how it's being reported. But I think, honestly, there are still some taboo subjects in Australia that, and across the media internationally that we really need to reconsider why they're taboo um, and, if handled with sensitivity, why we can't make this a conversation we have every day. Because it's the same. It's the same with suicide. That you know, we're we're strangely silent on suicide, or we say that you know someone um, was found on the train tracks. There's signifiers that are there that make you, as a as a conscientious reader, look and say, well, there's pointers that this could be a domestic violence situation. Um, but that that shying away from taking the last step of um, this was related to this huge issue. And I think for a lot of people watching the show not realising how pervasive the problem is, that it happens across postcodes, that it happens to people of all stripes and that it's such a huge issue. It's a, it's a financial and productivity issue because police are spending so much time, you know, all the percentage of the call-outs. And um, that was the big thing for me watching this series, just how much of a problem it is that it just doesn't really get reported on. Now, the six months that Sarah was given to make this series is quite rare these days. And in fact, she personally thanked ABC boss Mark Scott for making it possible. How important is it to fund these six-month journalistic projects and what's in it for media organisations who do? Jenny? It's obviously really important to be able to fund this sort of 
immersion journalism or any kind of journalism that involves more than just taking that silly viral story off Facebook and, you know, getting some clicks off it. Looking at just these two stories next to each other, it's it's so valuable and so important. You know, it's important research for society for us to all be able to have this conversation. It's a really great thing that the ABC is able to do that and one of the great reasons of why we need the ABC to continue being funded. Josh, do you think they could have pulled off a show like this with any less time in the producing? They could have pulled off a show. I'm not sure it would have been any, anywhere near the, the depth and breadth and scope of, of what was put together for the ABC. Just for the simple fact that it takes a lot of time to get your head around these massive, enormous stories. And like we say, you know, just the scope of what happens in domestic violence in Australia can take a lot of time to get your head around these sort of things and to properly kind of find the best way to tell this sort of story. Obviously, she would have done, you know, dozens or maybe hundreds of interviews to find the the people that, that best tell the story. And, and that's what a journalist's sort of job is. It's it's finding the information and sort of filtering it and presenting it in, in the in the best way. And I, I think six months is an astronomical amount of time to spend on, on anything, let alone, you know, one story, let alone a story like this. Um, and, and like we mentioned, you know, it, it's not often that that will happen in, in today's sort of journalism. Like it's all about quick hits and what's going to go viral on Facebook and what's going to get a thousand retweets on Twitter and that sort of thing. But when these pieces of journalism do come out, they are massively well received. And I, I you know, defy anyone who works in journalism to have not heard of, of this particular, you know, this series hitting home or, you know, the... the uh, Another sort of comparable sort of effort would be the the killing season, and, and that those sort of huge epic sort of event pieces of journalism really come to to, to shine through, and people notice them, and people mm. recognise them, and people sit up and take notice and go, "Hey, this is actually something I should take a look at." And it also it's it's this conversation that people are having about an incredibly important issue as well that I think really makes a difference and it does show the public broadcaster serves a purpose Um, you know it's not just about making money it's actually about um, education and having that um, dialogue uh, with with you know the whole country so I think that's quite significant as well. And the split between public and commercial broadcasters, I mean we think about it we're all working for commercial um, organisations there is no denying that stories like a Photoshop passport, people do click on them. And we, we'd we like to think that it's not like that, but if you look at the click rates for stories that are kind of viral like that, they're astronomical. So what it involves is actually thinking about how can you do the story topics that deserve this kind of depth? How can you actually dig into them so that people are coming to your site or to your channel or to your newspaper for that kind of in-depth analysis and criticism and discussion that you wouldn't see in that kind of clickbaity story and offering something that they can't find elsewhere? The series kicks off in Western Sydney. It moves to uh, the New South Wales Central Coast. And then we come back to the well-to-do suburb of Mossman. Uh, do you think that was a conscious decision by the producers? I think it perhaps goes to what you were saying earlier about the breadth of this issue. Absolutely. It was a conscious decision because as we, as I'm sure we all started off thinking that domestic violence is an issue that only happens in poor homes, in homes that look a certain way. But if we think that one in four women have had their lives affected by um a family violence of some kind, then it can't just be all in the western suburbs of Sydney. It's across it's across the country. And I think reporting like this really sheds light on that and gets people to break down those stereotypes they have in their own minds. 
You're on Fourth Estate. My name's Jack Fisher. I'm speaking to Claire Riley, Josh Butler and Jenny Noyes. Now, Claire, Facebook are making more inroads into the world of journalism. We've already seen this year the uh, launch of Instant Articles, where publishers can publish direct to the Facebook app. They've now got a tool for journalists called Signal. Uh, it's a tool that only journalists can access. You've had a look at it. Is it any good? What is it? What's it all about? It depends what you mean by good. Um, look, Facebook's big drive is to keep everyone within the Facebook ecosystem so no one has to ever leave. Hopefully, they'll be able to buy their food there, sleep there. Um, so it's it's you you write about instant articles, news, everything staying within that one one world. What they've tried to do is take all of this instant article stuff that they have, or news, all the platforms that are currently publishing onto Facebook, all the pa- uh, the pages of different identities you know, famous people around the world, thought leaders, um, famous sports players. They've got so many people and so much publishing on that platform that they're trying to leverage that and give journalists ways to kind of track and analyse. So at the moment, you can see what's trending uh, in topics if you look over the right-hand side of your screen, but that's all based on your own personal preferences, stuff you're interested in. Um, What they've done with Signal is kind of break it up a bit more, but... If you've used it, and I work for I work for a US company, it's still so US focused. So it's it's beyond ridiculous. I mean, the, if you're tracking through sports, you get a really mammoth choice of NBA, NFL, or NHL. If you're into hockey, um, if you want to go a bit further, you might go into um, uh, you've got a whole section on US politics and um, presidential front runners. You've got influencers. Now, this is the first time I saw someone who wasn't a big name in the US in the sense that Pope Francis was up there. He was leading the charge. But also Tony Robbins was like third. So he's a very American kind of guy. Um, You can track things like share of voice. Um, It's sort of a percentage of how much noise different people and different um, topics are generating on, um, on the platform. You can actually track other journalists, but once again, you're seeing NBC shows like uh, Meet the Press. Um, there were four Kardashian slash Kendalls in the top 10 of the lifestyle influencers. Um, and musicians, this is what really interested me. Um, Kanye was topping the list with a 24% share of voice um, today. Adele was number two at 17. Now, she's just sold in one week 3.4% million copies of her album 25 in the US alone Kanye um, had some fake sneakers that people thought he designed he was in an American Idol promo and people were talking about what his baby's going to be called so I think Signal is like a valuable tool for tracking what's on Facebook but everyone on Facebook isn't necessarily smart or talking about really newsworthy stuff so to go back to our friend uh, Fupdapik if there was a Fupdapik and if it was real and that's a person, you know, an in- in- individual on Facebook having their posts go viral and get shared. Is this the sort? Is that the sort of thing that would be picked up? Because it seems to me like that is what journalists really want this for, not to be told what they already know about celebrities. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because it seems to be tracking pages of identities and brand pages and news pages. So the kind of publishing houses, you might track stories from New York Times. Um, I did a bit of a search for hashtags so you can track content from Instagram. So I looked up uh, COP21, what's happening in Paris, and there were some really great visuals that you can pull out of that. Um, you can take out video from Storify that's immediately kind of verified for sharing, and you can just kind of plonk it into your news story. It still does feel like a tool for lazy journalists, and it feels like it's tracking a certain 
a wedge of the media and a certain wedge of what's happening in the world, but it is still kind of verified accounts, uh, publishers, you know, sports teams, official pages. That's what you're seeing in terms of the share of voice, and I think it's not really going to capture the full element of what's breaking. It's not gonna. It's not gonna replace picking up the phone and making a phone call. Uh, journalists, of course, love case studies, real life stories that help to tell the stories of larger societal issues. Josh, obviously, like Facebook could be an absolute goldmine for that, but that doesn't seem to be what this product is offering. Do you think there's a huge market for that? Would media companies pay to be able to have that sort of uh, big brother access to Facebook? Um, yeah, I think I think definitely. Like, obviously, you know, so much of what we call you know online media now comes from you know this tweet just went viral and here's this crazy Instagram selfie of, of whatever and the tools to sort of mine that data they would be they're so valuable and they're so um, they're, they're still sort of like I said, they're still sort of being uh, ironed out and, and the kinks are still sort of uh, being you know worked out and that sort of thing but there are programs out there that actually do this really well there's a really good one for, for Twitter um, that that I use sometimes that we use at, at HuffPost it's called Data Miner um, and that sort of I think it's a bit, bit more along the lines of what you were saying um, it, it, it you know gets the sort of verified information out. But yeah, those tools are really great. Well, that's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Thanks to my guests, Claire Riley, Josh Butler and Jenny Noyes. Don't forget to subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. As of today, we are in fact one of the top 14 podcasts in Australia as voted by the Sydney Morning Herald. So go ahead and subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud or your podcast player of choice. My name's Jack Fisher and you can catch us at the same time next week.